Well, good to be with you guys again. My name is Brandon, one of the pastors here at River City. Welcome. If you're new, especially welcome to you. Uh, we uh, just began a new series uh, that we're going to be continuing on. It's going to be our kind of our series through the summer. It's called uh, Jesus on Every Page, the Gospel in the Old Testament. And um, throughout the series, we're going to be taking a look at a bunch of uh, passages and stories throughout the Old Testament. And... Uh, seeing them in some different ways. There'll be a lot of stories that you maybe grew up listening to or you heard, maybe some stories you haven't read before, um, but all of them ultimately are about Jesus. At River City, we believe that the whole Bible is about Jesus, and the very first week of our series, we uh, studied in Luke chapter 24, where Jesus uh, says outright that the whole thing is about him, and he shows these disciples on the road to Emmaus um, all of the ways that the gospel and the Old Testament point to him and show him and reveal him. And last week, we studied Genesis chapter 3 and the fall, right? And we saw that in verse 15... Just moments after sin's entrance into the world, God is promising a remedy for sin. And the remedy not only the, it don't, not only reverses the results of sin, but it pulls up the root of sin. And the promised remedy for sin in Genesis 3 is Jesus. It's always him. And so Jesus is the one who has crushed the head of Satan and sin and death just as he promised that he would. And Jesus is the true and better Adam who instead of imparting sin to us, imparts his righteousness to us. And so I'm really looking forward to continuing our series. I trust and hope after the last few weeks you as well are looking forward to that. Uh, If not, too bad. You're already here. So uh, this week we're going to take a look at a passage you you probably read before, Isaiah chapter 6. Uh, This passage is commonly referred to as Isaiah's calling into ministry. And at the outset of uh, his ministry, Isaiah sees a vision of God that radically changes him. It radically changes who he is. And he really needed that vision of God. And um, I think the truth is that we need the same view of God that Isaiah got. And so let's dive into our passage this morning and uh, look for Jesus on every page, okay? We're in Isaiah chapter 6. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and exalted, seated on a throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. And above him were seraphim, each with six wings, and with two wings they covered their faces, and two they covered their feet, and two they were flying, and they were calling out to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. And at the sound of their voice, the the doorposts and the threshold shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. Woe to me, I cried, I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. And my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. And then one of the seraphim flew to me with a live coal in his hands, which he had taken with tongs from the altar. And with it, he touched my mouth and he said, see, this has touched your lips. Your guilt has taken away. Your sin is atoned for. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send and who will go for me? Or who, who will go for us? And I said, here am I. Send me. God, help us to uh, see you rightly in your word this morning. Uh, to see you as Isaiah did. And Spirit of God, we just ask that you'd shine light on Jesus so that we'd see him this morning in our passage. God, give us, um, God, give us a, a full view of who you are. God, in such a way that it would change us as it changed Isaiah. God, we just ask that, um, ask that you'd fill me with your spirit so I'd be able to 
show us Jesus and point us to him. God, that won't happen without your spirit filling me and doing that. And so we just pray that you would accomplish all those things for our good and for your great glory, God. Amen. Amen. Uh, so Isaiah's vision of God, it, it pretty obviously and fundamentally like root level core changes are made to Isaiah. So the question is, uh, what did Isaiah see, right? Well, there is uh, way more to say about this passage than we have time for, and my allotted time is only like three and a half or four hours. Um, so uh, we'll, we'll get to as much as we can in the limited time that we have together, right? But I want, I want for us this morning, I want to highlight four things, four ways that Isaiah saw God that changed him. So Isaiah saw four, four things that were true about God that changed him. And Isaiah saw the living God, Isaiah saw the holy and glorious God, he saw the cleansing God, and he saw ascending God. So the first, the living God Isaiah saw. Verse 1 begins, in the, in the year that King Uzziah died. So, so let's take a little context, right? King Uzziah was 16 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned for 52 years. And Uzziah was actually a good king. He was one of the very few, very limited bright spots in uh, God's people's history of kings. In 2 Chronicles, it, the Bible talks about him this way. It says, he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. He set himself to seek God. And as long as he sought the Lord, God made him prosper. I, Uzziah loved and pursued the Lord, and God caused him to prosper. But not only Uzziah prospered in, in this time, the whole nation prospered under Uzziah's leadership as he sought the Lord and pursued him. But things weren't really all good in the kingdom. See, prosperity had led the people to complacency and to sin as it so often does for us. And furthermore, Assyria, which was kind of the superpower of the day, um, it was known for taking people captive by fish hooks, like putting fish hooks in people's mouths and dragging them off to other countries. That's, that's Assyria, right? Assyria is on the north, and they're on the move, and they're conquering people, and they're conquering nations, and there's no one left between uh, the people of Judah and Israel and the, and the Assyrians. And it's in that time that King Uzziah dies. It's in the midst of a time of crisis that King Uzziah dies. Things look really grim. Things are... This, there's been this good king on the throne, and suddenly he dies, and all of this peril is as at the door. That's when God decides to show Isaiah who he really is. You see, verse 1 continues, though. In the verse 1, it says, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord. I saw him high and exalted and seated on a throne. You see, Isaiah saw the living God. More importantly, Isaiah saw the living king. He saw the Lord sitting on a throne. As one commentator writes, the undying king holds court above. See, in the midst of all the chaos, in the midst of all the pain, in all the unstable future, in the impending battles that are ahead, God shows Isaiah that even though his king, even though Uzziah had died, the true king was very much alive. Isaiah needed to remember that the true king was alive and well and that he was on the true throne, ruling and reigning over all things. 
One pastor puts it this way, when your world is upside down, you desperately need a vision of God on the throne. And since the days of Saul, God's people were always tempted to look to a human king for deliverance rather than to the true king. But Isaiah is privileged to see that there is a throne in heaven and it's occupied by the true king. God's revelation of himself to Isaiah as the living king, that was intended to give Isaiah hope. It was intended to give him confidence and to direct where his hope and his confidence should really be. See, the coming years, they would not be easy. They would not be good years. They would not be prosperous years. They would be incredibly difficult and hard years. And Isaiah was going to need a vision of a living, true king who was on the ultimate throne of all things if he was going to have any hope in that time. But Isaiah didn't just see God as the living king. Isaiah saw God as the holy and glorious king that he is. In verse 1, right, it says that he was high and exalted. The train of his robe filled the temple. In verses 2 and 3, there are seraphim. These are angelic beings, glorious in their own right. They're flying around, and they're yelling out. They're crying out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. God's not just alive, he's lifted high, he's exalted, he is holy, holy, holy. The word holy, right, it means to be set apart. And so the question is, what sets God apart? Why is he so far set apart? John Piper, I just think, really helpfully articulates it this way. He says, God's holiness is his intrinsic, infinite, and transcendent purity, goodness, and worth. It's God's infinite and unparalleled purity, his absolute goodness, his intrinsic worth that sets him apart from everyone and everything. We have value and worth because God ascribes value and worth to us. God has value and worth because he is. You see, it's God's infinite purity, his absolute goodness, his undefinable worth. It's on display in the words of the seraphim who are crying out, holy, holy, holy is he. It's really important in the Hebrew language uh, to get across emphasis and magnitude, you just repeat stuff, right? There is no other attribute of God in all of the Old Testament that is repeated three times. This is the only example in all of the Old Testament that an attribute of God is repeated three times. And so the question is, what, what are these angels what are these here from them? What are they trying to get across? They're trying to get across that God's holiness is not just unique. God's holiness is not just far above anyone or anything else. No, the angels are, are crying out that God's holiness is beyond absolute measure. It's beyond the limits of any scale. It's beyond the lengths of any imagination. They're crying out, God, you are infinitely pure. You are absolutely good. You are incomparably beautiful. You are incalculably valuable. And the whole earth, it's full of that. It's full of your glory. If God's holiness is the intrinsic and infinite transcendent purity and worth that he has, then Piper goes on to say that God's glory is the public radiance of his holiness. God's glory is his holiness on display that we might see it and enjoy it, that we, might, that we might be overcome by all that he is. You see, God's holiness and his glory, they're two sides of the same coin. 
And Isaiah sees the holiness of God on incredible display in this glorious picture of him. He sees God as the holy and glorious king, and there's only one response that Isaiah can have. He says, woe is me. In the Bible, when it says, woe is me, he's not just saying, oh boy, that's trouble. The, when the Bible says, woe, that, that means Isaiah's saying, I am cursed. I don't know about you, but it seems a little surprising to me that that's his response, right? You would think that Isaiah's response of seeing God would just be like, man, just like tons of words of just like, wow, God, you are amazing. I can't believe how magnificent you are. You might think that, you might think that the response might even be speechlessness. He's just like, you, you might think that that's response. But my initial response is that you wouldn't, you wouldn't think, woe is me. But that's, that's the only way that we actually can respond when we see the holiness of God. Absolute conviction and devastation. Verse four says, at the sound of their voices, the angels crying out, describing God's holiness. At the sound of their voices, the doorposts and the thresholds of the temple shook. The temple was filled with smoke. Verse four describes an earthquake and darkness filling Isaiah's vision. That's not good. Earthquakes, darkness, those, those would fall in, clearly in the category of not good things, right? Isaiah is not thinking, wow, this is really impressive. He's thinking, I'm going to die. That's the only thing that's coming in his mind. There is an earthquake and there is smoke filling his view. It's not a happy picture for him. Because it's only in the presence of God and his holiness and his glory that we actually see ourselves rightly. See, what happens is we love to compare ourselves to other people to measure ourselves, but it's only in view of God's perfection that we have the right scale in view. We are so infinitesimally small in compared to who God is. We don't even make the needle move on the scale of holiness. We, we're not even, there's just no way to even compare ourselves to him. See, and Isaiah's response is the only response that anyone can really have when they see God in his holiness. Isaiah acknowledges and he affirms that he is condemned, that it's right, that it's just, that it's the only response he could possibly have. He says, woe is me, I'm ruined. He is absolutely convicted of his sin. And for the first five chapters of Isaiah, Isaiah is calling out the sins of the people of Judah. He's telling them all the things that they're doing wrong, and he is telling them all the ways that they messed up and all the ways that they're in opposition to God. And he's, he's right, because it is really jacked up what's going on. The Israelites, they don't measure up to God, but it's only in Isaiah when he sees God's holiness that he sees the gravity and the magnitude and the depth of his own sinfulness and his own opposition to God. You see, the Israelites, the people of Judah, they don't measure up. And neither does Isaiah. God's holiness is on display and it brings this deep conviction which leads Isaiah to conf the confession of sin that we see in verse five, right? He says, woe is me, I am a man of unclean lips. Why is that the thing? Why is that what he says? I have unclean lips? I mean, like, really, Isaiah? That seems kind of weird, right? And then you think about it, right? Isaiah is a prophet. He spoke for God. 
He uses his mouth, his lips to do that. I think the thing that happens a lot of times for us, like it did for Isaiah, is that um, the thing that we're often most confident in, the thing that we feel most sure about, the thing that we think makes us the most appealing to God is the thing that we look to for confidence in our standing with him. God, I, I, I'm really good at speaking in front of people. God, I, I'm, I can lead small groups really well. God, I, I'm really great at explaining the gospel to people. And Isaiah says, he sees that even in his sin, the thing that he uses to serve God, his mouth, his lips, he realizes that even that is sin. Isaiah realized even in his speaking for God, he did so with wrong motives and a crooked heart and with blindness to his own sin. And the words that came from his lips did not make him right with God. He stood just as condemned as all of the people he was preaching to in the first five chapters of the book. But verse five ends with this. It says, for my eyes have seen the king. It was only in seeing God, the holy and glorious king, that Isaiah saw the truth about who he really was. Isaiah's generation was unfit for God, and Isaiah was no better himself. But Isaiah does not just see God as the living king. He does not just see God as the holy and glorious king that he is. Isaiah sees God as the cleansing king. Verse 6 Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a live coal in his hands, which he had taken from the tongs from the altar. And with with it, he touched my mouth and he said, see, this has touched your lips. Your guilt has been taken away and your sin's been atoned for. I can only imagine how unimaginable this this next thing would have been to Isaiah. He sees the the smoke billowing towards him and he he feels the shake of the earthquake that is happening in the temple. And he's sure that he's going to die. But instead, the storm of God's judgment that was coming against Isaiah's sin, it's overcome by God's grace and mercy that flow instead. See, the angel comes to Isaiah with a burning coal. Where? The coal is from the altar. The coal is what's left when the fire has consumed a sacrifice that's on the altar. There's been a sacrifice on the altar, and it's resulted in Isaiah's guilt being removed. It's resulted in his sin being atoned for or covered or paid for. It's not just vaguely the sins of everyone. No, it's personal, right? The very sin Isaiah confesses, the sin of his lips, that's where the angel touches the coal. And he says, the very thing, the very sin that you've acknowledged, the very sin that you have confessed, that's what this is restoring. Isaiah's been cleansed. He's now fit to be in God's presence. And what happens is Isaiah's led to repentance. You see, repentance is not just stopping sinning. Repentance is not just even acknowledging that you've sinned. It begins with conviction. It begins with confession. But repentance at its root is acknowledging that you've been believing something else. You've been believing something else to be God. You've been worshiping it and it's been causing you to head a wrong direction. And so the root of repentance is not just stopping sin. The root of repentance is that you need to have a view of the true king to run after. 
See, Isaiah acknowledges his sin, and God restores him, God cleanses him, and then God gives him a view of what's true about him. It's only when we see God that we see the true and living king, the holy and glorious king, the cleansing king, that we have a view of God that we can actually run towards. It leads to changed life and it leads to changed actions. One commentator writes, Isaiah was just moments ago barred from God's presence and his view was obscured by smoke. The doorposts are trembling. Isaiah can't go towards God, not that he wanted to anyways in that moment. It was impossible to come to God or even to see him. But the king's cleansing has changed all of that. And Isaiah hears the Lord's voice, and instead of running, he turns to listen. He hears the Lord's voice. It's not one of judgment. It's not one of condemnation. It's one of invitation. And he turns, and he responds, and he looks towards the Lord. Lastly, Isaiah sees God as the sending king. In verse 8, it says, I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? Who will go for us? And I said, Here am I. Send me. The king's cleansing of Isaiah was totally sufficient. It was instantly effective. It was completely good. And now Isaiah is qualified to proclaim the only hope that anyone has, and it's the overwhelming grace and mercy of God. You see, God sent the angel with the cleansing coal from the altar to cleanse Isaiah from his sin. And now God is sending Isaiah as his messenger. But Isaiah is a dead end, you guys. Just like every other character in the Old Testament, he's a dead end. Because right after this, we see that God tells Isaiah, the message I'm going to give you, no one will listen to you. No one will respond to you. No one, no one will admonish you. No one will hear. No one will respond. No one will listen or obey. Their hearts will be hard. And Isaiah says, how long, should I, how long am I supposed to tell people this? He says, until everyone rejects it. God's word to Isaiah is not one of like great hope. He says, Isaiah, I'm sending you as my messenger and no one will listen. It leaves us longing for someone better than Isaiah. It leaves us longing for the hope that verse 13 says, the hope that God promises of the holy seed that would come. Isaiah's vision of God doesn't end with him. It ends with God. It ends with God promising to be faithful and God promising not to go away, but in the midst of all of the rebellion to leave a seed of hope. Isaiah's vision of God was timely. It was exactly what Isaiah needed to see. What Isaiah saw was the true king, the Lord Almighty. The king was alive. He was holy and he was glorious. He cleanses his people. He sends them out with his message of reconciliation. Isaiah's vision of God was incredibly timely. But Isaiah's vision of God is also absolutely timeless. Because it's that vision of God that we need to see too. We need to see the true king that Isaiah saw. And the good news is that in Jesus, we have. John 12, 41. 
John is referring to this passage, these verses, and he says this. He says, Isaiah saw what? He says, Isaiah saw Jesus' glory, and he spoke about him. That picture of God's glory and his holiness filling the temple, that was Jesus. The whole time, it was him. You see, Jesus is the true and living king that Isaiah saw. Jesus is the true king. Christ is not his last name. It's his title. It means Jesus the king. Jesus was the living king Isaiah saw in his vision, and he is our living king as well. But in Jesus, God is not just alive. God actually died, and he rose again. Unlike Isaiah, Jesus did not need to be cleansed to avoid judgment. Unlike King Uzziah, who died because of his own sin, Jesus died because of ours. Just like Isaiah wrongly looked to his king Uzziah for hope, we look to other kings all the time. We look to other things to be our hope, whether it's our jobs or our career or our money or our spouse. All those things, they can go away in an instant, just like King Uzziah died. We need to put our hope in the risen and living king. The only thing that will never change, the only place where there is absolute hope and unending firmness of foundation. You see, seeing the living king on the throne gave Isaiah the hope that he needed. And seeing Jesus, our risen king, is the only place that we will find the hope that we need. But Jesus is also the holy and glorious king that Isaiah saw. John 1 says this, the word, speaking about Jesus, he became flesh, dwelled among us. The, the verse goes on, it says, we have seen his glory. The glory of the one and only. It's in Jesus that we see the ultimate picture of God's holiness and his glory, which is his holiness on display. John Piper says this, this is so helpful. He says, Jesus Christ was displaying his glory on the cross and he was being the most glorious on the cross. He did the most glorious thing in purchasing my new birth and purchasing the capacity for me to see his glory. He was paying the price for me to enjoy his glory and he was being the most glorious person imaginable when he did that great act of love. And so the glory of God comes to its highest climax in the glory of his grace. It's displayed most fully when Jesus died in the place of sinners and arose again. And just as seeing God's holiness and glory drove Isaiah to conviction and confession, so truly seeing Jesus it has to drive us to the same thing. When we compare ourselves to Jesus, man, the only thing you can see is how utterly sinful you are. That's the only thing you can see when you compare to Jesus. You see his perfection, and you see your train wreck. You see, we all look to something to validate our standing with God. We often look to our actions or our behaviors or the way that we compare or our actions or behaviors compare to others. And the Bible says that's all worthless, absolute garbage. In fact, the Bible says that, that is, that's rebellion against God. Because what you're saying is, I don't need you, God. I'll just be better than other people. When we look at Jesus, that's the only time that we see ourselves rightly. And we're a mess. Every single one of us. There isn't a person who is not. And if you have never felt the justness, the rightness 
of that, if you've never felt the weight of your sin and realized that you should feel it, then you've never seen the king and you don't know who he is. Because the only response we ever have to God's holiness is that we should see how unholy we are. But if you've never heard God's glorious and loving voice in the midst of the weight of your sin, then you've never seen the king either. Because Jesus is not just the true and living king. He is not just the holy and glorious king. He's the cleansing king. You see, one day, as the Gospel of Matthew accounts, darkness would cover the land just as smoke filled the temple. And the curtain of the earthly temple would be torn in two, causing the earth to shake and the rocks to split. Just as the foundations of that heavenly temple shook at the holiness of God. But God's judgment would not fall on Isaiah and it won't fall on us. Instead, it comes and it falls on Jesus. It's through his promised sacrifice that Isaiah was spared from God's judgment. Isaiah's sin was cleansed by the results of God's sacrifice on the altar, and it enabled him to look again on God, to repent, to turn and face God again. And so we too are cleansed by Jesus' sacrifice, his life and death given for us in our place for our sins, and that's what enables us to fix our eyes on him and to look at him again and not just see our utter sinfulness, but to see his grace. Where once we could only see our guilt and our sin in the presence of his holiness through his sacrifice and his cleansing, our guilt has been removed. Our sin has been paid for. Jesus' atoning work for our sins is just as complete and effective as it was for Isaiah. Now we can look on him without fear or dread, but with great and abiding joy. Because he is the cleansing king who has made us clean. And so we're fit to be in his presence. And it's only once we see Jesus as our true king, as our holy and glorious king, as our cleansing king, that we'll be able to see him as the sending king that Isaiah saw. See, Jesus sent Isaiah as his messenger And he sends us as his ambassadors, his ministers of reconciliation. Jesus was sent by God as a missionary to us. In John 20, 21, Jesus says, just as the Father sent me, so I'm sending you. The only difference between us and Isaiah is that the promise God gives is that the fields are ripe for harvest and not barren and hard. And all of that is because of Jesus' redeeming work and his great power to renew and restore. Isaiah was cleansed, and he could do nothing else but offer his whole life back to God in humble worship to him. And so, too, there's no other response we can have. There's no no other response that we can have if we see God for who he is. See, Jesus is alive, and he is holy, and he is glorious. It's through his atoning sacrifice that we're made clean. It's in his power that we are sent to proclaim his good news. What Isaiah saw in part, we see in full. What Isaiah experienced in anticipation of what was to come, we experience actually in Jesus' death and life on the cross and in his spirit filling us. You see, it's Jesus on every page. We need Jesus on every page. 
Without him, it all leads to dead ends. It all leads to hopelessness. It all leads to barren ground and failure. But with him, there's actually hope. I think it's easy to read this passage and think that it's about Isaiah. It's about his calling and his commissioning. It's not about him. It's never been about him. It's always been about Jesus. See, it's Jesus on every page. We need him on every page. And we love him on every page. God, we just humbly, God, we humbly pray and ask that you'd that you would give us Isaiah's vision of you, the true king. That you would cause our true view of you to bring about hope in light of your living and ruling and reigning. That it would bring about conviction and confession as it should in light of your holiness and your glory. That it would bring about repentance and turning towards you in light of being cleansed by you. God, and we ask that it would, God, that you'd send us on mission with you in light of you sending your son for us and in light of you being the sending king. God, we need to see you. We need you to show us who you are so that we can respond to you rightly, God. You are the true and living king. You are the holy and glorious king. You are the cleansing king and you are the sending king that we need. God, give us that view of you. And cause us by your spirit to respond rightly as we should. Amen.